Welcome, everybody, to a Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone today is author Greg Runoff. He has written two fantastic books. One is, of course, called Van Halen Rising, and the new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, Ted Templeman as Told to Greg Renoff. And uh, before we get to Greg Renoff, let us bring in our favorite and only co-host, Alan Niven, who, of course, has some great stories about Ted Templeman. Uh, bonjour, Monsieur Alain Niven. Comment allez-vous? Bonjour, Monsieur. Comment ça va? Ça va très, très bien. Life is, uh, life is good. So, we have this book by Greg Renoff, which, if you haven't had a chance to see it, you absolutely have to read this. It is an absolute... It is a compelling, compelling read. And Ted Templeman has probably worked on an album by a band, and I'm talking to the fans right now, that you love. He's worked with Aerosmith. He's worked with Cheap Trick. He's worked with Montrose, Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers. And I, I could go on. There, there's 365 or more credits to his name as producer or, or and or something else. Uh, Alan, what, what do you know about Ted Templeman and... Was he ever considered to work with Great White or Clarence Clemens or Guns N' Roses and for some reason just didn't work out? Or was he just too expensive for these bands to hire? Did, did you ever, you know, run around his circle of, of, of life? No, but this I will say. Um, Ted is definitely one of my heroes and a guiding light. And I'll, I'll give you... a an illustration of what I mean by guiding light. Um, I went to see this American band on their first foray into the United Kingdom and had their first couple of albums and was very excited to be able to go and see them at last and went to see them. And I have to say, I was a little disappointed with the show. And that sent me back to my little basement flat in Oxford and I pulled out the record because now I wanted to know why the record was so good and why the live performance was a little ho-hum. And I figured out that it must have something to do with a guy called a producer. At that point, I didn't understand what a producer was and what they did and their significance in the studio. But definitely, after seeing the Doobie Brothers... I wanted to know who the producer was and what a producer did because the record was outstanding. And, you know, again, um, the first Montrose record knocked, knocked me clear on, on my back heels. I thought it was brilliant. And again, it was Ted Templeman, the producer. Um, and that record is seminal. Um, that record fired up and inspired countless bands. Um, so I have nothing but hosannas for, for Ted Templeman. Um, in terms of working with people that I worked with, um, my assessment was we needed a particular kind of, of personality for um, Guns N' Roses. And I think we got the right one. I think Mike Klink was the perfect person. Um, his personality and, and his strength as a, um, a very empathetic 
engineer of guitar um, was critical to <clears throat> the Guns N' Roses record. Um, and, you know, with, with great white, I have to confess that um, when it came to producing that band, um, it was a little bit of an accident. We, we were looking for, for a producer with, with Tom Wally, the A&R guy at Capitol. We went to our A-list of Desire and our B-list and our C-list and nobody responded. And we eventually got to the D-list and somebody on the D-list wanted $75,000 up front and four points. And my, re my reaction in the phone call with Tom Wally was, what? What's he done that he deserves that amount? I can produce a record as good as that guy can. And lo and behold, Tom Wally said, you think so? And I went, oh, shit, now I'm in trouble. Um, and then he said, go into the studio and cut four tracks. So that's how I started out being um, the producer for Great White. We went and we cut four tracks. One of them was Rock Me, and Tom turned around and said, finish the record. So that's why, you know, I never got the opportunity to put head in, in place for a, for a record. I wish that he'd, I'd thought of him for Havana Black. Um, for their second record, because the guys that we did get um, was a complete and utter disaster. But Ted would have been great for Havana Black. And, you know, that's one of those things where I look back and go, oh, you think you're so clever? Well, you missed that one. Well, listen, I, I will say this honestly. You are no D-list producer. So you you went straight <laughs> oh, from you went straight from uh, the, the front office at, uh, what was that place called? Green? What was, where did you work again? Uh, what was the name I, of that? I was working. I was working uh, at a little distribution company called Green World. Green World. That's it. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. you went. You went from Green World to to world class producer. So forget that seventy five. Now, uh, just real back to to the Montrose thing. That first album. You look at these songs. I mean, it, this this is not an album. This is a greatest hits. Rock the nation. Eventually covered down the road by many bands, including Tesla, Bad Motor Scooter. Still makes it into Sammy Hagar solo uh, performances all these years later. It has, it has not lost Space its... Station number five. Yes. Uh, now, who covered... I think... I mean, did the Def Leppard cover that? Somebody covered that. But, you know, uh, Good Rockin' Tonight, which... Uh, uh, Rock Candy, covered by L.A. Guns. Uh, it just... Uh, it's it's a, a super record. It's a super record. Did, um, did this gentleman also not write a book about Van Halen? Yes, yes, I said that uh, he wrote. He wrote. Uh, now, in fact, I'm going to read you the whole title because I love the whole title. It is called "Van Halen Rising: How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal." Well, I, I got to tell you, I've, I've got a slightly different take on Van Halen in some ways. I know what you're going to say. I think With Sammy Hagar, they were a much, much better band. That aside, no, I'm no, I'm not going to say that. I tell you what, I am going to say is that there is one member of that band who I don't think ever gets sufficient credit, and I'll tell you, my favorite um, Halen track, far and away, is Panama, and Panama to me is all about Alex. I think he makes that track, drives that track, gives it a phenomenal feel. Every time I hear that track, I want to turn it up, and I feel good. And my hat's off to Alex, and I don't think Alex gets nearly the kudos he should, because he really does drive that band. And for me, when you say Van Halen, I go, 
yeah, Eddie, everybody talks about Eddie, but look at Alex. I agree, and I think it's got to be sort of a tough, uh, tough position for him to be in because when you're in the back of sort of the best uh, guitarist in the world, and you've got this wild and crazy front man that's making all the you know the hit paraders and the circus magazines and the whatever else was around the time, and then you've got you know Michael Anthony with his Jack Daniels bass and of course those vocals that he provides. You get, I mean, you you're lost in the. Sh- it's like being watching the NHL All Star Game or or Major League Baseball's All Star Game, and you just see a home run hitter after a home run hitter after a home run hitter. At some point, you're going to be the fourth home run hitter, you know. And it's it's he is so good. Anyway, um, what else can we say about Van Hale? Oh, I know what we were going to say. Uh, and and Alan, I know you're going to agree with this. Uh, Van Halen is America's second best band. Right behind Kiss. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm having a difficulty swallowing that, but I am going to say no Alex, probably no Van Halen. Think about that. <laughs> build, right. you, you build your song on your drummer, and I don't think he's got nearly the kudos that he deserves. Well, it's funny because Eric Singer of Kiss once said that a song is like building a house and the drums provide the foundation and you cannot build a first story without first having a foundation. See? Uh, absolutely. The That's wisdom, absolutely it. The wisdom of when Kiss. When you're recording, when, well, I, <laughs> there is some wisdom from Kiss. Good Lord, gosh. <laughs> Excuse me while I sit down. Um, but uh, no, when you're recording, the very first thing that you're concentrating on is the drum performance. And if you don't have a good performance from the drummer, you cannot build the song. Listen, I won't I won't argue that point. And uh, I will say this before we get over to Greg. In the book, because you mentioned Panama, uh, Ted talks about how from that album, he likes Panama, but overall, he just thought that 1984 was a eh kind of album, and he particularly does not like Jump. So I I find that interesting that here is an album that thanks to MTV and the videos catapulted this band to the next next level in their career cuz listen they were they were no slouches slouches up to 1984 but you know when you start seeing the video for uh, Jump on Friday night NBC's Friday night videos it made a difference and uh it's just funny that the producer of this massive album goes it's meh meh it's okay, you know. You, I, I, I would agree with Ted. Don't be doing that. Don't be. It's a great album. Okay, let's let's look. <laughs> let's, okay. let's. 1984 is a great album. Kiss is a fantastic band. And you're my not favorite, a, my favorite, my favorite Van Halen record is the first one. Is that the, the ones that Gene Simmons helped with the demos? I agree. I agree. That's a very yeah. very, very astute because you know. Uh, let us. <laughs> I could do this all day. Let us get over to uh, Greg Renoff. Uh, folks, if you do not uh, or have not read Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, uh, or Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. Huh. You know, there's something to be said about one-word titles. Anyway, uh, here is author Greg 
Renoff. We are speaking with uh, author Greg Renoff. The new book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. And uh, on that, uh, as we say in Montreal, bonjour, Greg. How are you? Good morning. Yes, uh, we are doing this early morning and for me on about three hours sleep. So so, <laughs> so this might be unintentionally entertaining for, for fans. <laughs> but uh, first off, let me, let me just start off with uh, your presence on the socials and on Twitter uh, just a lot of great debate that that comes up when you post about Van Halen and your great love for Van Halen, and you know you and I go at it, and and Matt Wake jumps in, and and my buddy yeah. Jeremy, and and fans are always asking questions and responding and retweeting. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about that 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 presence online for you, and how much fun that might be, because I I just see your feed as being nothing but fun. <laughs> you know I. Uh... I joined Twitter years ago and it, it was, it's funny that I, you know, you have to sort of migrate to find your tribe. And eventually I sort of, you know, gravitated more towards, uh, you know, Van Halen. Um, I just kind of joined to sort of see what was going on. I, I wasn't on the platform and, uh, you know, I think, you know, when you and I and Jeremy and Matt and so many other people talk Van Halen, I think part of it is one reflective of the deep passion that so many people have for the band. Uh, but I also think it's also the, the fact that, you know, there's really nobody on Twitter who's related to the band, maybe other than Sammy, who doesn't seem to, you know, who, I, who I'm not sure is actually posting on Twitter directly um, himself. There's really, you know, with a lot of artists with Motley Crue, you can go back and forth with Nikki Six, with Rat, Stephen Piercy's on. You can kind of have the band member as the focal point. Skid Row with Sebastian, obviously his long legacy with the band. So I think that's part of the reason why, you know, we uh, we sort of fill the void because there really is radio silence, as as uh, we all know from the the Van Halen brothers and sort of Van Halen writ large as an entity. So um, yeah, I have I really uh, think it's it uh, it provides a lot of uh, outlet for people who who wish you know van halen's website would post updates or we would get uh, more regular information out of the, out of the band yeah you, you've sort of become the uh, the de facto representative for the band maybe that's too harsh of or too too large of a term but you sort of have become the the de facto guy if you want to talk van halen so so good on you for that but talk to me a little bit before we get into this book because it is a great book but what is sort of your history and your background in music and and how did you become this Van Halen guy who wrote a Van Halen book and now the the Ted book who of course is you know known for producing amongst others Van Halen Well I uh came of age at the right time I guess to become a massive Van Halen fan or at least one time which was um I really first heard Van Halen when Jump came out and that was you know that I had um, I had some musical awareness about rock music from an uncle who uh, turned me on to Allman Brothers and some of these other bands. But, you know, those were kind of his bands and I, I would I would listen to them. And but uh, when I heard Van Halen's Jump, that sort of set me set me off as a as a fan and uh, took up guitar around that time too. like a lot of like, millions of kids trying to imitate Eddie Van Halen. And I was a very mediocre guitar player. And, uh, you know, for me, life went on to. Uh, college and then post-grad I, I did a, a PhD in history and my uh, career focus was not on music it was just on popular culture as an, as an academic historian and I, I uh, was looking for something to do as a bit of a diversion from my typical um, work which was more focused on the 19th century actually and I decided to do what I thought was going to be an article for Van Halen News Desk or something about Van Halen's um, beginnings I had 
been reading a couple of people on Facebook, kind of Pasadena people talking about what had gone on in Pasadena um, in the early days. And just, you know, kind of on Van Halen threads on Facebook, people would chime in and talk about backyard parties. And I sort of went with that and that rolled up into eventually the Van Halen Rising book, which was not something that was some master plan that I started with when I first worked on doing um, some writing on Van Halen's beginnings. That was actually, as I said, meant to be like a little, you know, a little essay article. And uh, that was just the, the beginning of uh, the process for me. And it, it culminated with Van Halen Rising coming out, which, as you know, I already alluded to, or we talked about directly, actually, is, you know, I think, think there was a great craving that maybe I wasn't aware of how deep it was for people to know more about the band because there had been, you know, kind of limited, limited coverage of them. They never did a behind the music. They never did an official documentary. We, we never had a Eddie and Alex never did biographies. And so I think that was part of what was, was going on. There was a bit of a, a bit of a void there, especially about their beginnings, which was, I think, um, I don't want to say shrouded in mystery, but I think there was a lot of uh, misinformation and just from, you know, no one really have it ever looked at it. So uh, that was the other thing, too, that had been Ian Christie had done a good book about Van Halen and there are a number of other books that I like, but it hadn't really concentrated on the beginnings of the band. And I think that's sort of how it started for me. And then um, I met Ted through the book uh, Van Halen Rising. Well, and that, that's a great meeting. So I do want to talk about why you think Van Halen is mysterious. But let me get over to it to Ted here, because you, you mentioned 1984. So we're we're jumping towards like the the, the three fourth end of the book here, where mm -hmm. Ted starts talking about the album 1984, and he starts talking about Jump, and he is uh, well, let's say critical. He doesn't seem to like the song, didn't like the way it was put together, and he even says sort of, eh, I don't really like that album. Um, talk to me about Jump in the bands in the band's history. How? significant was it in them being able to move forward through the 80s where we did have a more you know pop rock sound or bubblegum mm -hmm. rock sound where where we did get more you know bon jovi came out and and def leppard went mm -hmm. from the new wave of british metal to pour some sugar on me um let's start at, at jump how monumental is that in the band's history well i mean I think it's it's an absolute Landmark, and I think that's one of the really interesting thing about about Ted's story and about the entire story of the 1984 album was that it was, you know, clearly a clash between um, I think Ted's vision and David Lee Roth's vision of what they thought Van Halen music would sound like, and then what Ed Ed's um, vision. And so the uh, the idea for Jump, from what I understand, uh, was kicking around for some years. Ted didn't specifically remember that. He, that it was it dated back to maybe as far back as fair warning or a little bit after fair warning that ed had come up with it but um when it you know it really got sort of put on the table and left on the table during the beginning of the 1984 pre-production sessions where basically dave and ted heard it weren't crazy about it but ed just kept doubling down in so as far as ted recalls just basically saying i like this this is what i like this is what i want to do and uh you know, carried it through, it get carried through the album process to, to number one. And I mean, I think that's, as you're, you're getting at the, the point about the transition point where I, I always try to observe to people that there had been probably more keyboards on earlier Van Halen albums than people even realized there were keyboards on uh, women and children first, as most people know from Cradle Rock, but also on uh, Diver Down, not only was it on uh, Dancing in the Street, but also there was a, there's a mix of secrets 
that is a was a single version. There was a, a keyboard track that Ed laid down on that one too. If you listen um, in headphones to that single version, you can hear the keyboards. And then of course, carrying forward towards 1984, it, the the keyboards accelerate and then on to 5150. So I mean, I think I think it was really that impulse that Ed had to add more keyboards to the mix uh, of Van Halen sound that he in pushing for that. I mean, I think that's, that's it. I mean, I think you couldn't really argue with the success. Nobody, Ted's not gonna argue with the success. Nobody is that that was a, um, a recording that was wildly successful and, and probably, I mean, I think in, in complete, I, I think a completely accurate statement is to say that it actually built more of a Van Halen fan base through jump than any fans who jumped off the Van Halen, um, bandwagon, so to speak, when they heard jump and were turned off by that sound when it hit the radio. Yeah. Listen, uh, I knew of Van Halen before that because of my brother, but seeing the jump video on NBC Friday night videos or whatever that show was called, mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, I like this uh, and I like the video and I like the presentation. And so you, you listen, it, it turned me into a fan moving forward. Yeah. I, no doubt about it. Um so let, let, let me go back here to, to the book, the genesis of the book. You do your Van Halen book, and then you meet Ted through this. What is it about Ted that made him a compelling uh, person to tell his story? What attracted you? I mean, yes, he does. He, he's a record producer, but what was it about Ted where you just went, yeah, you know what? I really want to tell this guy's story or help tell his story. Well, you know... I got to know Ted through writing Van Halen Rising. And then after the book came out, we exchanged emails on occasion. We talked and we had we had done a book event together in Pasadena. That was the first time I met him in person. Basically, the day the book came out for Van Halen Rising, he was nice enough to come out and sign books with me and sign albums for people. It was amazing for me as a fan. And, uh, you know, he he started telling me in emails about his career more broadly. And I was just sort of us having conversations and he would just bring things up about how he had seen for example, he'd seen Elvis and Frank Sinatra record in the 60s that I mean, I knew that he had been a pop star, a member of Harper's Bazaar, which was a soft rock group in the 60s. I knew that he told me more about that and kind of really, really opened my eyes about that, um, told me about his career as an executive. You know, not only was he a house producer for Warner Brothers, but he also was a, a senior vice president when he left the company. And so he was a guy who was around the boardroom for, you know, many, many of the big decisions. He would go to these big financial meetings. I mean, really, he had two separate careers at Warner Brothers, where he was an executive, he wore the one hat, and then he was a record producer. And, uh, you know, when I started to think about all those things, and he talked about his, his childhood, his sort of his aspirations to be a musician, and how he started off actually uh, as a jazz guy playing trumpet, then transitioned to rock and roll when the Beatles came out, I thought this is a really interesting, interesting story beyond just the, the hits with the Doobie Brothers and Van Halen and Nicolette Larson. There was a, a whole um, pre- um, Pre a backstory, if you want. Yeah, backstory. Yeah, pre chapter that whole that whole thing where where Ted was again was this this pop star, and then the the um, the work with the with the bands, but also how that also played out with him wearing those two um, two hats. I thought that was really really quite compelling, and I think knowing also how you know I think the role of the record producer has obviously changed if it exists at all anymore to you know in a, in rock anymore. There, you know, that was the person who was in the room with the band, obviously, when they were making records with the artist coaching them and working with them in rehearsals and really was an integral creative force in the way the record sounded. And I thought, wow, to have his take on this, you know, kind of his his version of how he recalls things would be really interesting to hear about those Doobie Brothers records or Little Feet 
or Montrose, the first Montrose record. I mean, that working with Sammy Hagar for me, that was that was just, you know, kind of cemented it um, for me. And then all the other things that he had done before that ever came to pass. Yeah. And by the way, the, the, the word there's a lot of great parts in this book, but that <clears throat> sorry, that Montrose story uh, where it's like, hey, you're working with the guy who was going to be in Van Halen and. In a sense, if you, if you read the book carefully or in between the lines, he was the reason why he wasn't working with Van Halen when he showed up, right? Let, let's let's get into that. After 1984, Dave does the uh, EP, and they say they're going to bring in Sammy Hagar. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ted says, listen, you can't call this Van Halen. You know, you four guys are Van Halen. You three guys with Sammy is not Van Halen. And so off he goes, uh, and yet he has a great love and admi- admiration for, for Sammy. So talk to me a little bit about that time. And, and as he's telling you these stories and you're getting these notes down, c- could you sense any kind of emotion in his voice or emotion in, in the letters? Sure. Because that, that must have been a weird time for him. It was. I mean, I, that was really, for me as a fan, and I think anybody who's, who's read any interviews surrounding the whole situation with Sammy and Van Halen in the 1980s, Sammy joining the band. I think there was sort of a, um, a popular conception because Ted never really chimed in on this at all, obviously before this, you know, that, that basically that Ted was happy to have Dave leave the band that Dave was, Dave was leaving. And Ted was like, great. I have the, I have the quote unquote, I have the star or something like that, which when I talked to Ted about that, he was one of the first things he said to me about that was I never wanted Van Halen to break up. I never wanted Dave to leave that band. And that really, was kind of shocking to me the way he the way he said that only because I only could go by what was sort of out there as a as a narrative. And uh, it was a very uh, painful thing for for Ted because he felt caught in the middle. And I think it was when I would talk to him, there was a lot of emotion in his voice because he did have a lot of affection for Sammy. He had just done VOA and had, um you know, had had plans to do another album with Sammy to follow up VOA. That was the, the plan was to do another record for Geffen. And uh you know, for, for Ted, there was something just magical and special about the original Van Halen. And to change that, even putting in a singer who Ted has enormous respect for, likes personally, considers a friend, was, was just wasn't right. And I mean, I think that's the thing that I think was hard for him because I think he felt he really disappointed Sammy and, and disappointed Ed and Alex as well, because there was this notion that, um, you know, why wouldn't you want to produce produce our record with Sammy? You You worked with Sammy and you basically you know, quote, air quotes, discovered Sammy and along with Ronnie Montrose in 1973. Like, why would you why would you not want to do this record? And I think for Ted to sort of stand his ground and say, I, I can't I can't go into this acting as if this is Van Halen because it's going to change and it's different. And he was I think he was right about the fact that obviously it was a very different in a lot of ways, a different sounding record. Um, but it, it was uh, eye opening for me. And, you know, Ted when he would talk about it, would be very impassioned about it. And we talked a great, great length about it. I mean, many, many, many times talking about um, just how he felt caught in the middle. And then even when he was doing Eat and Smile, Eat Him and Smile, which I thought was really fascinating, was that Ted said in the back of his mind, he always thought, this is just a segue to get Dave back into Van Halen. Basically, when when the two albums come out, 5150 and, and, and oh, you, uh, excuse me, and uh, Eat Him and Smile, and they do so well, Ted thought, well, this is, this is a no-brainer. Now both both guys, meaning Ed and Dave, can come back to each other. Nobody has to come back begging for the other person to come back. They both are able to come back from a position of strength and say, "Let's put this back together." 
um, with the original, you know, kind of like Aerosmith did eventually in the mid 80s. And it just never happened um, until much later. And so I think that was, as Ted mentions in the book, that was one of the most profound disappointments of his career because he he just wanted the band back together. And to be clear, you know, Ted made clear to me that he didn't really have the expectation that he was going to produce another Van Halen record necessarily. There had been a lot of static during 1984 and it was just sort of, you know, I think Ted is sort of see it as a, a fait accompli that it was it may in his time may have passed. But he just thought these guys need to be together because there's something special um, and it didn't it didn't happen. And he's right. And and, and I find it uh, exceptionally revealing when he talks about crazy from the heat and they go and record just the gigolo and so on and so forth. And he's like, oh, thank God the drums don't sound like Alex because I, I don't want this to be Van Halen light. I wanted it to sound different. Uh was that a bit of a shock that he was sort of, in a, in a way, rooting against Dave to to make the best? Does that make sense that that he was sort of, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think one of the things that that came through for me was that again I didn't, you know, and this is Ted's Ted's take on it. And I'm sure if we had uh, Ed or Alex on the line talking about this, they would have a very different take and might be completely disagree with this as the way they felt it affected them. But for for Ted, you know, he really wanted it to be kind of a push the pause button for Van Halen that he felt that there had been a lot of um, a lot of tension in the band. There were they were really kind of burned out from the road that uh, he wanted those guys to sort of be able to take a breath and take the, you know, basically thinking like, OK, the 1984 album process was such a stressful and at least from from Ted's perspective, especially especially angst filled event. And I think for those guys, too, that figured Dave does this little EP. It'll make a little splash. It'll come out um, and it'll allow Van Halen to regroup. And as you mentioned about the sound, I mean, that was one thing that Ted said he was absolutely uh, on and Dave too, supposedly uh, on board with was this idea that I don't want it to sound anything like Van Halen. I don't want anyone to think like, oh, Dave is basically, you know, it's one of these things where someone's holding back the best songs for their solo career or, you know, I'm just going to, you know, call it David Lee Roth and basically um, put together music that could be used on a Van Halen record or sounds like Van Halen. So, yeah, he, he talked about how he wanted the drums to sound different, the guitars, everything to be in a completely sonically different uh, range from what Van Halen represented. And I think that's actually very accurate. But, uh, you know, as, as Ted observes in the book, it didn't do the things that he maybe naively in retrospect thought it would do. It actually you know, from what he could tell, didn't please the brothers at all. They were actually um, upset by the the whole process and felt that Dave was using their their band name as a platform for his greater success. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about what what Ted was trying to do with the the EP, which was, you know, just to do something as a to keep working with Dave, do as a as a diversion. And then the idea that Van Halen would probably with Don Landy actually, you know, would have regrouped and done another Dave record, which they attempted, but it never it never happened. It never happened, and and it's also amazing just how the the, the context of since you talk about his, history and pop, you know, with MTV and videos in 1985, th those songs and those albums and those performances on the video made it larger than life. You know, had Van Halen been around in 1975 and Dave had gone off and done an EP, it might have gotten on a one or two AM radio yep. stations and it would have just disappeared, and nobody would have been upset. They would have been all right. He's got it out of his system, but because I mean, you, you go back to 1985, those videos are very iconic to that era. You, you know, California girls and all. I can see the boys going, damn it. He, look at him. He's successful. Um, you did mention Aerosmith uh, along the way here. So I, I do want to just get away from Van Halen for a second. And I want to talk about three albums that I love that Ted produced, but yet 
just didn't get the attention mm-hmm. by from the general public. So I'm going to start with Cheap Trick Woke Up With A Monster. When that came out in uh, 94, mm-hmm. I absolutely adored it. I just thought it was a great record. And I remember going, oh, wow, it's the guy from Van Halen who's done this. This is great. And you hear the songs, You're All I Want to Do and Never Run Out of Love and Didn't yep. Know I Had It. I love that. So so what is sort of your take on some of these least or less successful albums? And, and, and are you a fan of it? What do you think of his production? And does he talk much about these sort of, you know, unfan favorite albums? Or Yeah, I mean, I think the, one of the things that was really interesting for me when talking to Ted about something like that Cheap Trick record, whereas he, he was very frank in saying, you know, to be honest with you, I really always did my best work with a band when I took them from the first album forward. So we talked about Van Halen. He talked about the Doobie Brothers. He talked about um, Nicolette Larson. He talked about Bullet Boys. And he sort of said that, you know, I think he said kind of leaping in midstream with Axe, he didn't always um, nail it the way he, he thought. I mean, I think the other thing he told me about the Cheap Trick record was that he was just, you know, he was just blown away by how talented those guys were. I mean, I think in some ways he was almost like, you guys don't need me. I don't, I don't mean to say that he wasn't thinking that he had any input or no input to play, but I think, you know, when you have a band of that level with that had made that many records, I think Ted really understood that those guys had a good sense of what worked for them musically. I know one thing he did tell me, which I don't know if we mentioned in the book, I don't think we did, was that he was pretty uh, adamant about the fact that he thought the album cover idea was a really terrible idea. I mean, he, I know that he's, he's right only, about that. That's an right, awful, only, awful cover. He's not the only person in the world who ever said, obviously, that's nothing new. But he said, I, I remember I showed him the cover and he was like, I was I told those guys, this is a terrible idea. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, you know, and he also talked about especially about Xander, just about what an incredible voice he has and just how he was just um, blown away by his talent, particularly. I mean, all the guys in the band, they were such a great unit. But he just talked a lot about Xander and saying this guy is is one of the best singers I'd ever worked with in a studio. It was incredible. But, um, you know, that was a. Again, one of those records that she pointed out that didn't didn't connect. Maybe it was the time, maybe it was the songs, maybe it was the production, what it was. But um, you know, I think in the book too, what's really refreshing about Ted is he takes you know he takes responsibility for albums that don't do well. He sort of says, you know, hey, I could have done a better job, um, which I you know he would say that to me all the time. You know, basically when we talk about it, he goes, ah, you know, I didn't get this quite right. I missed I missed the mark here, um, which I thought was refreshing in this age of sort of nobody takes responsibility for anything. So, um, but you know. Um, yeah, again, I think, like you mentioned, a lot of good material on there. And I'll tell you what, I, I I disliked that cover so much that in my CD back in the day, I actually would turn the cover inside yeah. out and put it in. I just didn't, it, it was, it was unfortunate. But that said, the music is, is, is great. And I thought the production was great. Now, I wasn't going to ask you about the Bullet Boys, but you did mention the Bullet Boys. So let, let's go there for a second. That first sure. album that comes out in... 88 uh, a lot of comparisons to van halen people go oh mark is a david lee roth clone and uh, of course mark is his own talent and and very good at what he does but did he have any reservations about that was he was he looking for a a van halen part two how do you sort of how does he describe his work with the bullet boys well, it's interesting. Um, I've heard Jimmy tell this story a couple of times. I'll tell it really quickly is that Ted wasn't the guy who got turned on. Like he didn't, quote unquote, discover the Bullet Boys on the strip or anything like that. It was actually a woman by the name of uh, Roberta Peterson, who was an A&R executive for Warner Brothers, who called Ted up after she saw them. And she had told the Bullet Boys, I'm going to send my, you know, send somebody from Warner Brothers over. Well, Roberta Peterson's maiden name is Templeman. 
Roberta Peterson was is uh, was Ted's sister who saw them on the strip and encountered them and told basically told her brother, you should go check these guys out. Uh, Roberta had gone to work in the early 70s for the label um, at Ted's behest and had risen through the company to be quite a powerful A&R executive for the company. So so I don't think it was Ted was looking for a for a Van Halen style band. And in fact, um, you know, I think for for him, I think he just heard the sort of the raw the raw potential um, and the uh, just the, you know, the, the I, I think to do something stripped down. And I actually asked Ted pretty, pretty directly about the Van Halen comparison. He said, you know, it was never like an overt an overt thing for him. It wasn't like, oh, these guys are just like Van Halen. I think he, you know, he understood there was an influence there. But for him, he just really liked the I think the idea of being able to go back to a bass, drums, guitar, vocalist, like that, that quartet type of style like he had done with Montrose to kind of have that that. Um, very um, clean approach to production and do that type of stuff. He'd right. been doing, you know, um, some ba- bands like that, obviously, but, you know, not really any keyboards or anything like that with that album. And, and I got to say, Smooth Up In You is one of the greatest rock songs from that era. I mean, that that song can go on any top 20, you know, best of the 80s rock playlist easily. And, and the cover to that album is a yeah. classic. That one is not regrettable. I didn't turn that one in on the CD. All right, so let me get back to my initial premise about so a couple of three albums that that I love that didn't get the attention. We did Cheap Trick. I'm Canadian, so I'm going to go Canadian for a second. Honeymoon sure. Suite uh, put out an album called Racing After Midnight, and uh, you know, uh, Derry Green, the guitarist, he's often referred to up here in Canada as Canada's Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. He's got that style. He's got that. He, he's mm-hmm. just so good. Uh, and of course, that album has the Lethal Weapon um, uh, soundtrack, or whatever song, whatever you want to call title. it, title track. That's what you're looking for. Um, does he talk about that at all? And and also, you as a fan, and you, as you're doing your research, and as you know, you you have that PhD in history. You're obviously doing your research properly. Did you sit down and listen to this album? What do you think of it? What did Ted think of it? Um, and, and why didn't these Canadians make it? You know, uh, in thinking about how that all that all transpired with with Honeymoon Suite, I mean, that was the the um, I don't want to miss this point for people is that the Lethal Weapon soundtrack is how Ted got introduced to those guys that that Warner Brothers at this point by the middle eighties, you know, Ted was in a situation at Warner Brothers where he was doing a lot of. Um, things for the label that basically that instead of having the sort of more freedom to sort of say, I want to produce this, I want to produce that. Um, and, and being able to spend more time in the studio, he was actually from um, a corporate perspective, doing more soundtrack work and things like that. He did, he did Wayne's world as well. And so that was one thing where they sort of got on his radar because there was a, they needed a, ba- a band. Warner brothers needed a band to do a, a song for the lethal weapon movie. You know, we talked about the record um, a bit, in terms of, and I have listened to the record. What I remember mostly about that was that um, this the lead singer, whose name is is it John, John um, Johnny D. His, th- Johnny, thank you. I was going to say Jimmy Johnny. Johnny um, was hit by a, I believe, by a car or a bus at LAX in the middle of the yes. album session, yes. and which was which Ted said was just incredibly, obviously, was terrifying for the you know they you know get hit by here or someone's got hit by a bus. That's never a good thing. Um, but that he, you know he felt like that really kind of. Um, you know, may have sort of affected the the rollout for the record and these types of things in terms of the momentum of things. Uh, one other interesting side note about the album too is that you know Ted was uh, well known for for calling on um, his friends and people he had worked with on previous albums to work on 
on albums and uh, Michael McDonald co-wrote and sang on, on, uh, on the co-wrote one song and sang on the record as well. i just saw recently saw the picture of Michael in the studio with Ted and, um, with the guys and they all are like beaming, you know, it's a great picture because it's sort of these two, you know, these two studio legends, Michael McDonald, Ted Templeman with these, these, uh, young rock guys who look just, you know, out of their, out of their minds, happy that Michael McDonald is, is in the studio with them. So it's a cool, that was a cool memory for Ted too, to have Mike come in and work on that record. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, they did the song, uh, uh a long way back great song and of course you've got toby wright who ends up doing all the grunge production stuff in the 90s as an engineer just a, a great album and uh let me go over to one more he he does talk about working with aerosmith but he talks about after done with mirrors in the book where he says mm-hmm. listen i went back to aerosmith and i sort of felt bad that i and I, these are my words but I screwed up the done with mirrors thing and I wanted to redeem myself. So I went to talk right. to the Aerosmith guys. Now right. that's not exactly how he says that's me, that's me sure. paraphrasing, but I've always thought that done with mirrors is an exceptionally great record that for some reason it just didn't connect, but my fist, your face, let the music do the docking, the ha- uh, the talking, uh, the hop she's on. How do you, how do you look at that? And, and, why do you think a band like Aerosmith that was reuniting at the time goes to Ted? Because there were, there were, I guess there were some producers at the time, you know, Tom Worman, sure. uh, Bob Ezrin, uh, so on and so forth, where you just go, okay, we're going to make a comeback record. We need one of these guys. Uh, how do you think they got together? And, and why, why is it considered a mistake? It's not a mistake. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the connection for those guys was Montrose. I mean, that was really, I mean, Ted was coming off of 1984, obviously. So he was, you know, that album had been locked into the top of the charts when, when, uh, Aerosmith is reuniting and looking to do another record. And then the, the Montrose record was the one that, from what I understand from what I've read interviews with Perry and Tom Hamilton and these other guys, that that was the one that Ted had worked on that record. You know, I think, I think for Ted, he really felt as if he had this incredible band and what he means is he screwed it, quote unquote, screwed it up, I, you know, in sort of air quotes again, is that he didn't get a good enough song on the album. He felt like, you know, there just wasn't that sort of that song that was going to break the record, that there is this, you know, My Fist Your Face, the, the, the Gypsy Boots, this other stuff that he really, really liked and loved. You know, he he had this idea to do Aerosmith to do have this sort of stonesy, punky, trashy sound. He said he didn't really like you know, for, for what he thought Aerosmith should be, his vision for what Aerosmith should be. He didn't really like the big, the ballads with the strings that were done. I mean, he obviously has a huge respect for, um, for what was done by those records and thinks they're, they're amazing albums done by extremely talented, um, people, but he didn't think that was what he, he heard when he heard Aerosmith in the garage rehearsing when he was in Massachusetts, listening to them. And so, you know, for him, he just felt like it, it missed the mark because they didn't have a song that broke through at radio, uh, you know, and this is the situation that happened with, you know, ironically with Montrose, the same thing happened where there was not a, a hit single, so to speak, that would be something that would kind of get embedded on radio and, and drive the album sales. But, you know, we, I, Ted and I listened to it together, sitting at his place in California more than once. We listened to almost all the songs on the record. And he goes, I love this. I love this. I love this. And just, you know, how, how much he loved working with those guys. And, and, um, you know, I think going back to what I said earlier, Ted always, took responsibility in terms of saying like, you know, he wanted it to be Aerosmith is back just to sort of, you know, and it, it was, I think for in a lot of ways, people who are Aerosmith fans recognize that it's got a lot of good material and was a stepping stone to their larger success. But, you know, Ted wanted it to be, you know, better, I think, um, capture 
the potential that the band had to be quote unquote back. And so that's where he was hoping, you know, for something bigger for done with mirrors, but he does like the record and actually talks about how, you know, it's the one thing he'll like turn on YouTube and look and listen to that. He has done in the past. He's like, I don't, you know, he's not listening to Van Halen songs on YouTube or whatever, you know, not putting on his own albums, but he'll like, you know, search for Aerosmith done with mirrors and listen to gypsy boots or something like that. Cause he just loves it. He says the sound of it. It's a great sounding record. And, and I think part of the problem uh, being that it came out in 85 was that they just didn't have a compelling video to go with it. And, you can discount how important MTV yeah. might have been, but I think had they done My Fist, Your Face was this like whatever live action, you know, kung fu, whatever, you know, right. and, and and if people had turned on MTV and bought into it, I think people would be talking about this album differently. But you look at the Let the Music Do the Talking video, a little performance video where, you know, they, they fake bootleg. It wasn't a very compelling watch. And I think that was part of of the problem with that record. Um, I will ask you this before we wrap up. Uh, he does talk a lot about co uh, compelling Van Halen to do cover songs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he talks about Pretty Woman and he talks about this and that. Do you think that overall that was a good plan? I know he says in the book, well, you know, two thirds of the way, you're two thirds of the way there if you, if you, you do a song that people sure. already know and like. But Van Halen could have been, should have been, to me, all original, all the time, with the musicianship of Eddie, of, you know, the band, and, and Michael, and, and David as a person. Right. Do you think that the, the, the cover angle was, was really necessary? Well, I mean, I think going back to the very beginning of Ted's career with Montrose, that really was the impetus for why you end up with the covers, the first single for Van Halen, because Ted talked to me at great length about how disappointed he was that Montrose, their first record didn't connect big, um, didn't break out that, you know, I think it's all recognized now by everybody who's any sort of a fan of, of hard rock music from the seventies is an absolute classic. And one of those, you know, top 10 foundational albums for, for hard rock. Uh, but they never, the album stopped at 155 or 157 and dropped off the charts. It never did anything. And so for Ted, you really got me was about going to Van Halen's repertoire rather than Ted going, I got a song for you, learn this kink song and come back in the studio and we'll, we'll record it was that this was a song that he heard them. He actually heard them play their first, the first night he heard them or the second night he heard them, he, they played this song. And so Ted wanted to make sure that there was a song that was going to be on the album and could be put into a single that radio programmers weren't going to go, well, we've heard this, all this hard rock before. We're kind of over that. We're, we're on to other stuff. We're on to different types of music in the late seventies, this new wave things coming on strong or, or whatever that, you know, Ted wanted there to be something that was kind of undeniable that radio programmers had to go, this is good because you know, he knew the band was incredible, you know, going forward. That's one thing that Ted talks a lot about in the book about how, the only song that was quote unquote his idea that he brought to the band and said we should do this song was Dancing in the Street, which obviously was a really um, you know big big moment in the band's history because it ended up causing a lot of static long term with with um, Ed particularly about the decision to do that. But you know that was Ted's tailing was that you know um, they did Happy Trails on their original demo. Um, they did you know um, You're No Good was Dave Roth's idea that Dave was the one who came up with the idea to do that. So you know Ted when those were suggested. Ted was always willing to do that because he did believe that, that if you you know have a song that's already a hit and you finish it or redo it yourself and you, you can bring it all the way to um, a hit for yourself. So, I mean, I think, I think 
obviously when you look at Eddie Van Halen's songwriting output in the mid eighties and early eighties that he was writing so much material. I mean, it would have been easy, I think in a lot of ways to say, you know, we should leave this song off this album or we shouldn't do this cover, but you know, 1984, I think that's one of the reasons why there are no covers in 1984 because Ed and presumably Alex in particular, particular didn't want cover material. They wanted to do all their own songs. And that's what we end up with 1984. Which, which is a, to me, a landmark album. I mean, oh, sure. Panama jump, et cetera. Um, and let, let me just finish on this. Uh, Ted hasn't really produced a lot in the, in, in the recent years. In fact, I think the Doobie brothers world gone crazy in 2010. Yep. Maybe, maybe Joan Jett. You know, it's been about at least a decade. Does mm-hmm. does he talk at all about wanting to do one last great album or do get back in there and do a few more with some up and coming rookies and just give them his experience? How, how does he feel about getting back in the studio? You know, I, I think that's funny. The um, when we talk about that, I mean, he, he always talks to me about in terms of how much he loves what Sammy still does. I mean, I don't think, you know, Ted's in a a, a headspace where he's going to want to go out and try to find a young band and work with them. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, when it, I, I, again, I'm just sort of spitballing Ted never told me this directly, but I always, you know, he always talks to me about, I watch Sammy's videos and I love what he does so much with, um, with Mike and, you know, Jason Bonham. And he just, he just thinks the band is so great. So I always had some sort of hope in the back of my mind that maybe Sammy might say, Hey Ted, come on, you know, let's do, let's do a couple of songs or do a song or something like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Ted's, Ted's in his late seventies and I think he's sort of in that position where he, uh, you know, is kind of in some ways moved beyond that in terms of his day-to-day focus of his, of his life. He spent, you know, all whole days in studios for, for decades and decades. But, um, you know, that would be my sort of, you know, wish upon wishes just because I think that's something where I know that Sammy has enormous respect for for Ted as a producer. I've heard Sammy in interviews say that Ted is the, the best vocal producer on the planet, that nobody is better at doing Sammy's vocals with him than than Ted. So that would be fun. But that's just me throwing my own idea. Out. That's not from Ted or anything like that. But I know Ted watches Sammy's videos and really enjoys them. Well, I think we all enjoy them. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sammy's been, he's just been a lot of fun to watch. And, and, you know, when we talk about social media like we did with yours and mine before, a lot of these bands don't really do anything interesting. They'll say, oh, we've got a new pair of uh, shoes for sale or we've got a new necklace for sale or a new tour t Like the, the content is sort of like, eh. But you look at Sammy Hagar, especially on Instagram, and he's doing the videos and the lockdown right. videos and, and here's my new rap. Sammy just looks to me like be like he's one of the greatest guys to know. He just is having a lot of fun in life, you know. He's uh, he's the original Post Malone. There you go. <laughs> Ted, Ted, you know, Ted, I'll leave you with the Ted. Ted told me one great line he had about Sammy was he said Sammy was just you know has been like to the you know he's like a cheerleader mentality. He's been to the school of positive thinking that he said that Sammy was the type of guy in the studio that he could have crashed his Ferrari, totaled it in the way of the studio, shown up in a taxi and been like. Well, I told him my Ferrari, I guess I'm gonna have to buy another one. Let's work. You know, he just was so optimistic and so, you know, he said it was infectious. He said just working with them. That's why he loved working with them so much because he said, you know, it's like almost was impossible to have a bad day in the studio or with Sammy because he was so upbeat and had this great vibe all the time. So, um, yeah, totally. Sammy, those videos come through with that, that same, the same vibe. They just look fun. And I think, yeah, maybe that's, you know. That's why all of us watch them. I've seen them, and that's why Ted watches them. And and we watched them, and then watched them again, and watched them again. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll leave on that. So many more things uh, to uh, to talk about. You do need to read the book to read about this guy named Alan Holdsworth. I thought that story was kind of wacky. Like, oh, really? But uh, let's not talk about that. Let let the folks buy the book. Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. Uh, Greg, 
as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. An absolute, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you, too. Much have a wonderful day. You, too. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.